Hi, and welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Art Scoping is a podcast featuring innovative leaders from the cultural world, ranging from art dealers to thought leaders. It's a pleasure to spend some time today speaking with Adrian Ellis, the founder of AEA Consulting and the Global Cultural Districts Network. Adrian is a world-renowned expert in arts management, and I couldn't think of a more informed voice to help us all understand some of the dynamics roiling the cultural world in light of COVID-19. Adrian has worked in senior management and as a board member in both museums and the performing arts, and as a strategy consultant to leading clients in the cultural, public, and business sectors around the world. He is a noted writer and speaker who's been featured in numerous distinguished forums and today joins us here. Let's start with the big question, Adrian. Hysteria aside, has this pandemic altered the cultural universe permanently? The only answer I can give to that, the only honest answer I think anybody can give to that is I have no idea. Hmm. And I would be very, very suspicious of anyone who said that they did. This is a seismic change in our landscape. So all other things being equal, I think it would also be safe to say that there are strong grounds for believing that it probably will, and that it's incumbent upon us all to try and figure out as hypotheses, not you know assertions, as hypotheses, how the sector might change and whether we have any agency in that process, by which I mean, if it's going to change, um, what we can do about it. There's a great quote that, Mel- that Naomi Klein in probably um, quoted from Milton Friedman recently, which is that in a crisis, the ideas that are applied are the ideas that are around. So I guess we better make sure that there are some, some broadly useful ideas around. But the short answer to your question is, I don't know, but um, I believe that this is a period um, which is going to, this is the beginning of a fairly significant change to the sector. And um, it will either change willy-nilly or it will change for the better. And we should all try and understand the leeway we have. Let me just try a contrary-wise a question, which is that you and I have lived through not a few downturns from 1987 forward. And I'm sure in the immediate aftermath of the stock market collapse in 87 or 9-11 or 2008, everyone felt similarly that the world had changed. And then we kind of went back to an oblivious world, one in which choices were made quarter to quarter by boards. There wasn't a long-term vision, I would suggest, that that looked at the world differently through a different lens. So what do you think it is about this outbreak that's different from those previous downturns? Um, Well, first, I think you're characterization, I'm glad you said it, not me, but I think your characterization uh, of what happened, I, I don't remember as well 87, I was, so I was um, setting up the design museum, I just moved from the, from, uh, the treasury to the design museum, so I remember 2001, I was working a lot in New York with the non-profit finance fund, and I remember 2007, 8, 9, because I just started then at Jazz at Lincoln Center, and I think broadly you are right, um, uh, we took a deep breath, some things changed. Uh, there was a move by organized and, not disorganized, but organized and individual 
philanthropy to sort of bail people out in the short run, most people came back and, uh, and broadly things continued. So why might it be different now? I think the first is um, what was the case then is sort of a backdrop now. In other words, it's almost certain that there will be a recession. Um, I think uh, it's most likely that there will be a recession. But on top of the recession, uh, we have a pandemic that may take a year to find um, uh, uh, appropriate uh, antivirals. Uh, and therefore, there is the possibility uh, of a prolonged period of uncertainty. Um, and that uncertainty will affect um, consumer behavior. It will affect people's propensity to attend things. Uh, and I see that as, as one of the scenarios that, that is most sort of potentially problematic. A counter argument might be, well, if you look at the numbers in China, they appear to be declining. Um, uh, and China appears to have the, um, uh, a, a degree of control over the, the, uh, the, spread, of the spread of the virus. But uh, it doesn't look as if either Europe or the United States, never mind um, the rest of the world, um, is up to the sort of, or has the appetite for the sort of coordinated response. And therefore, it's likely that we, whether we're in an Italian situation, something like that, that's a period when it will be a while before people are sort of comfortable attending a concert, for example. Right. So that's why I think that, that that's why I think that we may, I, again, you know, one needs to um, hope for the best and plan for the worst. I think we should at least be thinking about not just the scenario that things pop right on the 1st of June, for example, but that one also needs to plan on a scenario that is considerably more dramatic. Right. So in 1918, we had the Spanish flu, which was yeah. so named because it started in Kansas, um, <laughs> inexplicably. And within a couple of years was the boom in cultural life in this country. Explosion of museum building and concert halls and the same thing that was happening prior to this chapter. So I'm not disputing what you're saying. I'm just recalling that we had an event that effectively decimated our population in, in extraordinary numbers. And yet there was some kind of bounce back that happened not that long after that, followed, of course, by the crash in the depression. So, um, right. We've, we've had so, episodes. We, we've had episodes. And I think, I think the issue is about getting from here, here to there, as it were. Right. Um, uh, I think that one of the things that one usually sees in these circumstances is is an acceleration of trends already underway. And we know that there are trends that our sector is sort of squaring up to, but hasn't quite squared up to them. Uh, what are they? You know, changes in demographics, changes in technology, there's a sort of litany, there's you know, the horsemen of the apocalypse, if you like, changes in, in taste, changing, changing how people use their leisure time, etc. Those are likely to get um, accelerated. And I think that um, you may be right, that there may well be, who knows what, you know, two or three years uh, comes down the pipe, but it will be uh, in a transformed context, I think. And I think also um, of consumer behavior and possibly of, of philanthropic behavior. And don't, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not saying this will happen. I'm saying that a responsible organization at the moment needs to look at more than the best case scenario. Sure, but 
that's an interesting word, responsible, because here we are in a moment of panic, which is not typically where responsibility shines. Mm -hmm. So you're getting emails and calls and texts from around the world. What are your clients asking you? What are they asking you in light of where we stand? They're asking a question, but they're really just asking themselves and then expanding out from that, which is the question we're all asking, but, you know, when will this stop? <laughs> so, so I, so I think that, um, uh, I, I think that, I mean, if you think how quickly this tsunami has crashed over us, and I know that, you know, with 2020 hindsight, we and everybody else is thinking, well, of course, a pandemic is inevitable, et cetera. But the reality is this was not on anyone's planning horizons, or if they were, they were, um, they were a, a sort of, um, uh, a muted voice in the corner of the room. I don't know of any, I'm not aware of any institution that was seriously planning for a pandemic, a cultural institution, I should say. So I think that, you know, and what was that, a week ago, a week on Thursday, the world began to change yeah. um, for people fundamentally. I don't know why it's all caught up with, Tom, you know, the headline of Tom Hanks somehow um, uh, and his wife um, contracting um, COVID-19 in, in Australia. Uh, you know, perceptions change. So I think that most are legitimately caught up with the short term. And believe me, the short term is extremely preoccupying for people. The idea that, you know, people have gone home and are, um, you know, occasionally clicking onto some, you know, collective Zoom call that otherwise got their feet up and are, you know, watching CNN or whatever, I think is um, not at all the case. I think that management have got enormous um, piles of stuff to work their way through. In terms of the contingency in the short term, what they do about their um, uh, what they do about their staff, staff who panelled work remotely, etc. So right. that short term, I think, uh, has filled people's heads at the moment. And I think sure. we can I talk more about the short term. Here's my question: You get yeah. calls, I'm sure, from trustees who often hire yeah. you, as well as executive directors and CEOs. How would you describe the different tonality and thrust of the conversations with those two respective? Well, people. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm going to generalize um, yeah. a lot, but I think that I think that there is a common concern with one issue, which is uh, and mainly maybe differing perspectives. You know, a tendency towards differing differing perspectives on that issue. So, one issue, one issue clearly in the short term is: Do I make short-term cuts? Right. Uh, including of staff, furloughs, and including contracted workers that I don't have obligations to, non-unionized staff where I have leeway, because I know that I may need to, so why not get on with it? Versus, do I have a set of responsibilities as an employer, and do I have civic responsibilities as a, as a, a civic anchor, if you like, as an institution, that mean that that sort of perspective should not be the only one that informs my decision making. Right. And I think that that is a very live discussion at the moment. And I think it's quite nuanced, you know, somewhere between, as it were, sentimentality and brutality, um, uh, somewhere on that continuum, um, intelligent considered action lies. Yeah. And I think that there may be a difference in the initial perspective, generally of some board members and generally the disposition of people who are closer, maybe closer to the realities of the employment situation of that vast gig working economy that is pretty close to um, the economy of culture. Yeah, a lot, and I guess a lot of trustees are business people who look at their businesses and make decisions that are indexed to the health of their enterprise. 
And in many of those enterprises, there are people who, like analysts on Wall Street, or people who are attorneys, or people who are consultants, no offense, of one form or another. And they, mm. if they weren't you, they would say, do I need all of this now? When an art museum or a performing arts organization is thinking about cuts, so many of those organizations have departments of one person or two people or five people. And a cut can be more than a cut. It can be an, an extraordinary loss. What are, your, what are you saying back to people when they say, hey, we're going to lay off a whole bunch of people and that'll save us a whole bunch of money and life will go on? So I think, I think the point you're making is a very powerful one. It's not a wider moral point. It's, it's actually a point about, the, the, about protecting the underlying asset of the institution. And the underlying asset of the institution isn't just the collection or the archives or whatever. It is the expertise and the tacit knowledge of staff. And so I think what you're saying is where, you know, if you lay off that staff, you lose that expertise, probably forever it gets dissipated. Uh, and therefore you want to be extremely careful. But that's, I'd say there's, a, there's another argument, uh, which is, we don't exactly know how this is playing out. And I would be slightly nervous of any decision that was made, you know, within what, four days of people really looking into the abyss. So my advice would be buy time and use that time intelligently. And by buy time, I mean, unless there is, and I think you premised this bit of the discussion by saying you were talking about larger institutions. You know. So if you are talking about larger institutions, the reality is, Danny Voss at um, SMU's research suggests that the, the median uh, working capital for the whole sector is, is pretty short, it's about a month. I think it's longer than that for um, larger institutions. Sure. And so I think that they, would, uh, they, should, they should not be the ones leaping to immediate, you know, immediate action they should be quite deliberative and they should be thinking about, uh, they may well need to make cuts, but they should be thinking intelligently about how to deploy those, both with humanity and your point, I think, doing the minimum damage to the uh, long-term um, health of the organization. Well, I think there's another responsibility for the largest institutions that have large endowments, and we will talk about endowments in a second, but their responsibility is the following. They're a bellwether. And institutions of all scale, down to five-person organizations, will watch and listen the about the decisions of a significant yeah. organization and think, well, they've done that, so we must do that. And if you're an art museum or a performing arts center or complex, and you have an endowment north of 100, 200, 300, 400 million dollars, which not a few do, and you make that choice, then the small organization with a $4 million budget is going to make the same choice. And that to me is the predicament because it's yeah. a big responsibility. I think there's another point too, which is how you're impacted in the short term. There are a number of different factors that affect it. Clearly the most important is how much cash you have on hand, what your balances and reserves are like, and whether you have, if necessary, the credit to borrow, you know, but very low interest rates currently. Um, so that's obviously the first one. But the second one, which relates to this issue of, of how you make uh, savings, one aspect of your business model, which is if you're in the performing arts, clearly um, you've got a much higher reliance on earned income. 
and therefore your earned income, the impact of just closure is immediate. If you're a free entry, the impact of immediate closure is um, it, it may hit your food and beverage, it may hit your catering, but, it, but you know, you're overwhelmingly reliant on contributed income and therefore it's a slower impact. But the, the third point is that you're in the short term, all your costs are fixed. Yeah. In the long term, all your costs are variable. Mm-hmm. In other words, I mean, self-evident, but if you, if, if you tell me I've got to make savings today, I can, there are only a very few places where I can make those savings because overwhelmingly I'm either locked into contracts or I've got this building or I've got, you know, um, uh, I've got a union agreement, whatever else. If you tell me I've got to make savings in two years' time, I can make much more rational savings because I can work my way through those things and turn my fixed costs into variable costs. So any, any incentive to move very, very quickly puts pressure arbitrarily, if you like, on, very, on, on that narrow margin of things you've got wiggle room over in the short term. Now, this is a very crude way of looking at it, but in the long term, in the, in, sorry, in the short term, variable costs are art, i.e. they're the programming, and fixed costs are overhead administration. So there is a differential impact between the cut you have to make today of X and the same X made in a month's time or two months or three months' time. Right. You see what I mean? Yeah. And I think that I think that that's you know, we need to bear that in mind because if boards or management put pressure on for very short term cuts, they fall arbitrarily in terms of the value of the asset to the organization. Sure. And I think the the role of trusteeship is this is where that role becomes paramount because the voice of one strong trustee at a table of the finance committee, for example, of a museum or an arts organization of any kind will be listened to with great care and consideration. They bring a business practice. They bring a business head. They also presumably have a broad knowledge of how that organization has worked in the past. But we're in a moment in which decisions are being made that are born of fear and to the extent we can push against that and make them born of reason, great. But I'm concerned that a lot of organizations are operating not with the logic that you're imparting, but with a basic clinched fight or flight mentality. Possibly. And I'm sure you're right. But there are also already, I believe, um, examples of board heroism. Um, uh, I know one board member who's active in Boston on the BSO and the Huntington Museum, uh, and others who has put round a um, a rallying letter, yeah. um, uh, cleared with uh, you know cleared appropriately with his you know executive directors before he did so, um, that basically said this is our moment you know yeah. uh, in times of peace as it were we are you know what do we do we sort of bless things we ratify strategy we keep an eye on the chief executive etc. and of course we we give as generously as we can or as generously as we think appropriate in the circumstances. And his letter, which is, which is you know, quite brilliant, and I'm, uh, with his permission, stealing it and, you know, putting around the houses for, for others to draw on, is this is our moment. And so uh, we should be thinking with a logic which may not be the logic that we are applying to the restaurant we have shares in or whatever else. It may be a different sort of logic. But and it's not, not even a, logic, Adrian. It's yeah. passion. It's concern It's passion, for people. but it's not... It's not sentimental. No. In other no. words, I think that, uh, and here, here's where you've got to join the long term and the short term. If my sort of, you know, if there is a, you know, 30% chance that this is transformational in various ways, 
this, you know, you don't want to be um, uh, simply throwing, as it were, good money after bad, uh, where you could deploy it more intelligently. But this is about buying the time to ensure that you are going to spend that intelligently. And I see on Friday, a coalition of organized philanthropy announced a bailout fund for mid and smaller size organizations in New York. And, you know, one might take a, a view and say, well, gosh, that, that might be money down the drain. How many of those guys will survive? You can't just keep bailing them out. Again, I don't think that's what lay behind it. I don't know. I don't have any particular insight, but looking at the, looking at the organizations involved, my, my guess is it's exactly the same. They are thinking the sorts of decisions that you make with a gun to your head are not necessarily the best decisions for the health of the sector and therefore the contribution of the sector to society. Yeah, and the heartening example you gave in Boston, I think, is exactly the model that everyone should hope presents itself in the volunteer leadership of arts organizations, because it's when things go sideways that trusteeship becomes at the core an essential feature. When I was running the Indianapolis Museum of Art in 2008, our endowment took a major hit, and our board chair in front of the full board said when people were urging draconian change. He said, are we here to have a great endowment or a great museum? And (laughs) it wasn't meant to be irresponsible. It was meant to say, let's get a perspective. Our endowment was worth $50 million less 10 years ago. And then through sage investment and good fortune, it grew. But if we go back to where we were, it's better than losing the core expertise and the esprit de corps of our institution. So Do you think from what you've been hearing in the U.S., is that different from what you're hearing from clients overseas? So the answer, uh, the answer is yes, it is different. Um, I'm not sure that I can see patterns other than the obvious ones. Patterns mostly go back to two things, which are entirely predictable. One is the way the pandemic is developing in the country. Yeah. And the second is the the, uh, the nature of the funding system. So the UK is in as confused a state, I think, about collective action as the US um, with respect to the virus, even though it's a, it's a more centralized polity. But the funding system is very different. So everybody is looking for direction from the Arts Council and the Treasury. And the um, you know, trustees are, are important, but contributed income from board and from private philanthropy is less, still less significantly as a percentage of the total than it is in the US. So, so everybody's got their eyes on you know, where the Arts Council is going. And there will be, a, I think, a, a slower but more deliberative response. Right. Um, right. Uh, in other parts of the world, the Middle East appears to be rolling forward with plans. But you know, it's so early. It's like, sure. you know, it's really too early to say. And I'm fascinated that China is beginning to reopen museums. And that is, I don't know, what, what I think it's difficult to tell is whether that is, you know, that sort of bravura PR that has clearly, you know, kicked mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. or whether that reflects an underlying level of containment of the coronavirus such that it is, that the return to normality is, is real as opposed to uh, manufactured. Right. You oversee the Global Cultural Districts Network, which mm-hmm. is a federation of dozens of arts complexes around the world. Tell us a little bit about what you're hearing from those mega complexes versus individual institutions. Well, in some cases, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, in some cases, ominous silence, one yeah, or two, sure. um, uh, which, is, which is in itself interesting because they're pretty 
chatty lot. So uh, I think that that says, you know, deeply preoccupied with the short term, you know, Adrian, go away, keep out of our hair sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think that uh, for most, they've all shut up shop pretty well, pretty well, all of them. Uh, they have, they're, they're dealing with, which I think the whole sector is, uh, they're dealing with the difference between doing it voluntarily and being told to do it. This is a really important point because it, it affects force majeure clauses and it affects insurance. So the difference between making a decision about a cancellation of a particular date and cancelling, being told by the authorities that you, you can't be open, is leading to, a, you know, what's going to be, I think, a, you know, a massive round of battles between insurers and others. I think that they are, at the moment, most of them, I think, are on the more optimistic, are planning on the more optimistic scenarios. I think there are three scenarios, basically. One scenario is that sometime between now and the end of this season, things revert more or less to normal. Uh, the other is that it takes until the beginning of the fall, September or so. And then the third is that you're in the sort of uh, more lugubrious territory that I alluded to earlier in this conversation. Yeah. I think most of them that I see are in the middle ground and they're thinking basically we're shutting up shop until the fall. Um, and whether it's the fall or the spring, depending on what hemisphere you're in. And uh, most of them, I think, have the structure and the um, resources to get there yeah. because they are the large, mostly public, some not-for-profit. Uh, we have one or two private members, i.e. developers and others, and I, honestly, it, it, no, in all honesty, I don't know where they are currently. But Adrian, here's an interesting fault line to consider. Yeah. So there you are, you have how many members now of the Global Club? Uh, just under 50. 50 members, and these are complexes from Paris and Sydney and London and New York and all around the world. And 7 billion people in the world, the US as a market is a third of a billion. When we talk about the impact of this on US organizations, we're really talking about how private philanthropy is going to come and go. Yeah. But for the yeah. others, other 6.7 billion people, what you're saying is culture isn't going to go away quite so simply. It's going to resume because governments will resume. Is that fair absolutely. to say? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and therefore, the interesting questions are in what form and uh, what are the, um, you know, how, it's really where we started, A, how does the world look different? But B, how should the world look different? And, you know, I, I've been having a you know, conversation with, um, you know, internally with colleagues, and we were just thinking about, insofar as the sector has agency and its funders have agency and indeed governments generally are you know regarded as having a degree of agency in this clearly that you know what what does it mean to truly move to to, to digital is one that or, or to a greater reliance on digital we are relative not particularly advanced in using digital to engage with audiences in a way that has a viable business model underneath it Right. Uh, and that's clearly, a, you know, a really important. The second is, yes, we can learn from global experiences. There is clearly, we can learn from Hong Kong, from China, from Singapore, both about how SARS affected them and now where they, some of them are, you know, slightly ahead of us on the curve. I think there's a whole, there's a whole set of lessons there. Then there's a set of lessons about infrastructure. So we know that we've been on a, a fairly irrational building boom. You and I have talked and written about this the drivers of the global building boom are related more to the supply side than the demand side. Surely that is going to A, slow down, and B, we should be thinking about 
public spaces, we should be thinking about smaller informal spaces. It may be that the, the very large dense gatherings are not on the agenda for a while. I think there's a whole, you know, there's a whole sort of liberating agenda, if you like, to be thought about if, if we have the disk space to think about it, use an old but, metaphor. But Adrian, so I return to the USV, yeah. the rest of the world question yeah. around tax structure, around the mm -hmm. tax deductibility, which has led to an explosion of generosity. And now we see the White House is perfectly prepared to explore a variety of changes in how taxes are meted out and gathered of a scale that we have never seen. We both recall well the Detroit Institute of Arts being rescued by such a mechanism, without which there might not be a Detroit Institute of Arts as we see it today. Right. Sorry, and, the mechanism being what? Organized philanthropy. Well, in that organized case... Organized philanthropy plus public sector together pub, in Detroit yeah, City. Exactly. And, and that model, which came about as a function of a crisis in Detroit, was, I think, a solution that many looked at with favor, appreciation, and admiration, because it, it basically put the question to the community, do you want to see this resource continue? And to the astonishment of many, the voters were behind it. So I totally agree with that. And I think that that was in, in some ways, that was, you know, that was the perfect hybrid model. That was the coming together of civic, cultural, private, and public. Uh, around a you know a pretty heroic lift, so so and I and I think there are lessons there. I think there may be lessons for at least sort of indicative planning, if you like, where if we are going through a period of change, then there needs to be pools of capital, maybe pools of capital for preserving assets, pools of capital to protect cultural workers who are you know otherwise in the gig economy, pools of capital for tra for uh, assisting transformation potentially you know, uh, mergers, etc. So that is an area where I think organized philanthropy, although it's less significant financially, still has, you know, quite a lot of um, moral suasion, if you like, and considerable resources. And the sort of thing that you saw in, um, uh, uh, around the short term in, on Friday in, in New York may well be, there may well be all the, the beginnings of a larger debate about how organized philanthropy might start thinking about these things. And I don't just mean the big national funders, I also mean regional funders and right. community foundations and so forth. So I think you're right. Um, you know, hopefully uh, a crisis pushes people together and the, the, the possibility of those sorts of discussions and frameworks that were not in evidence before. And the philanthropic sector, organized, semi-organized, uh, whatever, has a thought leadership role, which is still pretty significant in the, in, right. in the States. Adrian, having spent some time in the doldrums here, let's lighten the mood at the end. I'm curious, you've, among your many achievements, served as executive director of jazz at Lincoln Center from 2007 to 2011, and you're a renowned jazz expert. So when you're out walking your dog, what's in your earphones these days? One is um, actually pretty recent, and I, the truth is I'd forgotten I'd bought it. But it's Dave Holland, Zakir Hussein, and Chris Potter, which is an improbable mix. Dave Holland is a British bassist. Mm -hmm. Zakir Hussein is an Indian percussionist. Chris Popper, Potter is a, a is a tenor player from America, and um, it's just called it's called Good Hope, and it is utterly wonderful. You know, world music gets a bad bad name because it's you know it's seen as just the sort of lowest common denominator. But this is three astonishing musicians from different backgrounds. The second one 
is um, Stan Getz and Kenny Barron called People Time. It was his Stan Getz's last recording before he died around 1991, and uh, it's just duets and it's gorgeous. So I'm not I'm not deaccessioning those. That's for sure. <laughs> So you're going to be digitizing and or eliminating. Oh, no, I don't like digitizing. Okay. Like, you've got to be able to browse physically. Right, right. But anyway. Well, it's such, it sounds like you've got some assignments, so we're going to let you go. But I want to thank you for making some time thank for us you. today. And I know you're, it's Sunday today. We happen to be recording. But I know that by tomorrow you're going to be ablaze. And I wish you good fortune in helping steer these extraordinary organizations that we all count on and i thank you for all the thought leadership you bring to the sector adrian um i'm uh, i'm extremely um uh i'm a humble contributor to uh, a wonderful world um uh, uh, including including uh you in other words that you know i have you know i fo i follow you as avidly as it sounds as if you follow me uh with with equal admiration and i think um this podcast sounds like a great idea so thank you, thank you for uh, thank you very much for you know, allowing me to be on it. Thank you, Adrian. We've been speaking today with Adrian Ellis, the founder of AEA Consulting and the Global Cultural Districts Network. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.